Well, hello, everybody. I uh, hope you're enjoying your Monday. The first Monday after a Washington non-conference Power 5 home victory against a ranked opponent since 2001. It's still true. The 20, the 21 year drought is can, over. Can you run through it again? <laughs> can you run through all the all the qualifiers and the criteria? Yeah, this is the this is the first Monday, Danny. The first Monday after a University of Washington Huskies win over a ranked Power Five non conference opponent in 21 years, and on that Monday, Danny Reggie Williams had just played his first college football game. So it's been it's that. been a little while. I believe I was covering that game for the Seattle Times. And and there you were on Saturday. You were you were I in was. the crowd. I was in I was in the crowd though. I was I was I was not an objective observer. I was wearing Washington paraphernalia. I was rooting my I was shouting myself hoarse, which happened. He's Danny O'Neill. I'm Christian Capel. This is Say Who Say Pod. The Huskies are three and zero. They are ranked 18th in the Associated Press top 25 poll. They're only 24th by the coaches. Danny, three spots behind yeah. Michigan State. What's up with that? I I, I wonder if I, I've always thought this. Like, if a team loses, uh, if a, like a top 15 team loses, and it's yeah. whether it's home on the road, quality opponent, whatever. I think there are people who just legit are like, okay, what was the score? Who were they playing? All right, well, Man. I'm I'm going to drop them by this many, and then you don't like make the connection that now you have them on your ballot ahead of the team that beat them and is undefeated. That beat them, and it wasn't it wasn't a close because I can get, hey, they're on the road. Don't penalize them too much for going and playing a good opponent like in Michigan State, but but they got beat. Like that wasn't like eleven points is misleading. Like they got beat. They got beat like they stole something for the majority of that game, and yeah, there there might be there might be some some questions asked about how it was closed out. But Washington scored the first twenty two points and led twenty nine to eight at halftime. I think everyone knew going into that game like what the opportunity was and kind of what was at stake and what Washington could do for itself and for Husky Stadium and this big national spotlight. Everybody's watching. Everybody's talking about the game. Husky Stadium's not quite capacity, but it's it. It sounded it like loud. it was a capacity. Yeah, um, it was loud. I thought it was loud. Do you do, do, does this go on the on the mantle for you next to Miami two thousand, Michigan two thousand one? No, 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 absolutely not. This is I'm trying to what what game would I put it? Because it depends on what happens next. This is. I just mean like to... the feeling, though, like in being being in the crowd, the the noise, the them jump into a lead, and all those sort of things. No, because it did not reach that deafening level. Like it didn't. It was loud. It was not inoperable. Loud, and that two thousand Miami. That's the loudest I've ever experienced that stadium. Maybe two thousand sixteen, uh, Stanford, the Friday night game. Like those are the those are the two loudest that I've been there. Um, this wasn't this wasn't that loud. Yeah, it wasn't, I, it, it, it wasn't quite that loud. I would agree on Miami. That was pretty. Oh, I, I don't I don't know how they get back to that that decibel level. Man, that, I mean, and it caved in on that quarterback. Also, like underrated, Butch Davis was the the Miami Hurricanes coach. Like he was a moron. He was an absolute idiot. Like I do not understand why they didn't give the ball to Clinton Portis more. Like Clinton Portis was a freshman or a sophomore on that team, and he like touched the ball five times. It was inexplicable. Like Portis, when he had the ball, was but that's that's an aside. But it caved in on Dorsey. The Ken Dorsey was their quarterback. And they had a pretty experienced offensive line. They won the national championship that year. It was the next year, 
but they they uh, they beat Florida. It was all the talk was about that Miami should have been in the national championship that year uh, with one loss because they had only lost to Washington. Overlooking the they fact did only that lose to Washington, Washington also only had one loss and lost to a yes. one loss Oregon State Oregon. or a uh, one loss Oregon team. That's so. correct. Or maybe that they was had a brutal game down in Eugene. Maybe they had two losses, but anyway, um, I I don't know that you would expect Michigan State to go on to have the same season based on what we saw from from them on Saturday. I don't think that's a a bad team, but it seems like they're they're still figuring out a lot defensively. I know they had a they had a safety out. They didn't they played without their top receiver. Uh, they were pretty vulnerable against the pass last year. Although, kind of thought they'd they'd be a little bit better this year. Um, I I think. A couple things. I mean, the the story is, you know, Washington has has at least returned to relevance. Whether they're quote unquote back, copyright Texas. Um, we'll see. You know, they, they got to go and play some games actually outside the city of Seattle this year at, at some point to, to to break that news to people. But um, it the 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 transformation that Michael Penix Jr. has made. From last year, yeah. at least, I think there was like always the hope in the back of people's minds that you were getting the Michael Penix Jr. that you saw at Indiana in 2019 with Kalen DeBoer, and then again in 2020 when they beat Penn State and he throws for almost 500 yards against Ohio State. I, I thought he looked maybe better than he ever has. He looked great. the The entire offense looked fantastic. I mean, when you when you factor in that. Roma Dunes, they didn't do all that much in the first half. The The fact of how they moved the ball and the turning, if you the two most important plays in that game, the, the first one is the safety. And that, that clearly was a moment where, first of all, it stopped all the complaining about him going for it. I love the fact that he went for it. I like how aggressive he is on fourth down. Like, I love that. So to have that paid off and to show that's, that's why you do that. The, the touchdown drive right before the half because Michigan State had just scored. They had, they had cut in. They kind of stopped the bleeding. It's 22-8 to eight at that point, and Michigan State's getting the ball to start the second half. And I think Washington had a minute and a half left, and it was just surgical moving it down the field. Like, that was – there is not anything more you could have asked for from Washington's offense over the first three weeks of the season than what we've seen. It's been a while since Washington would get the ball in a situation like that, and the first thought would be, "Well, let's let's see if they might be able to score." You know, like yeah. it, it's it, usually Washington's up twenty-two to eight on a team like that with a minute and a half left, and they get the ball back. You're thinking, "Well, you know, they they pro- certainly would have liked to have kept them off the board there, uh, but yeah, twenty-two to eight—that's a pretty good half. That's a pretty good halftime lead, you, and it doesn't really even enter your mind that like they're going to be explosive enough to to move it down the field that fast to punch in another touchdown before halftime. But yeah, I mean, how about the throw he makes? Not just the throw, but the play he makes with his legs, Penix, to to get um, to give himself another chance and, and actually give himself the opportunity to find Jalen Polk in the back of the end zone, and, he, and then he's got to fit it over, I don't know if it was a linebacker or a safety, but over a Michigan State defender on the money. Um, it, it, watching it yesterday again, I mean, I, I didn't realize how kind of how close that defender was. It really was threading a needle, and he had to buy himself time and, and take off out of the pocket to do it. And I, I just don't – I don't know who the last quarterback they had was who could make a play like that. 
my favorite part of that play was, and that's kind of the that's that's the exact corner of the end zone where our seats are, um, section one thirty two, and so he's scrambling toward where I'm sitting, and well, I wasn't sitting. He's scrambling toward where I'm standing, and you saw him tuck and then look up, like there was a moment where he he was prepared to run. And then he, you saw him shift his eyes up to take a look. And then he kind of flattened out and started curving more toward the sideline so he wasn't in danger of going over the line. It was, it was fantastic awareness. Like, it was just, that's a veteran quarterback who's composed and in control of exactly what he's doing. That he's, he's not freaked out by the time that's running down. He's not, he's not panicked when he's leaving the pocket. That he escaped danger sort of reset himself even as he's running and then looked up and found Polk down the field and made a great throw to get it to him. I almost wonder if the coaching staff kind of enjoys the fact that there were still some pretty like glaring missed opportunities and deficiencies from this game that like you got this really convincing win. The atmosphere was everything you could have wanted. The, the display that you were able to put on national television for millions of people watching could not have, you know, could hardly have been better. This was everything that if you're a Washington fan, coach, player, administrator, whatever, this was everything you wanted this day to be. Yet they can still go in on Sunday and say, you cannot come away from two possessions at the one yard line with zero points. And the first two Michigan State touchdowns were both on fourth down, both just like miracle throws by Peyton Thorne, right? Like it, there was a there was a point on on both of those dropbacks where you're just like oh he's got nobody like they're gonna get off the field he's got no chance one of them um, I think Dom Hampton is is gonna really want back I think that's a play Washington probably watches on film and thinks like that's gotta at the very least be a pass breakup you can't knock at your hands on that the second one and then the first one I mean that's just a quarterback and a receiver make a great play um, and obviously they they move the ball through the air pretty well in, in the second half but um, there did did you come away from this game either still really concerned or more concerned about about certain aspects of the team at all? I felt good about everything. Like, there was really, like, if there was, the questions that I had really related to, the, did ZTF not play as much in the first half because they wanted him to be fresher in the second half? It, it seemed like I'm trying to still get a, at a handle on their substitution packages, but the touchdowns being scored on fourth down, like, that's, I, I don't want to say tip your cap to him because that's, but... Like I thought, I thought Washington's defense played really well. Yeah, I, I think the goal line packages, like there's some quite, but you weren't in a situation where you felt desperate. Like I was, I'm not going to say I was relieved that they didn't score when they went forward on fourth down late, but I didn't think they needed to be trying to score another touchdown. Like I, it, it, there was also a late blitz that I wasn't a huge fan of that Washington called, but these are all quibbles. I only have quibbles. That's all I have from that game, Christian. I'm so happy with everything. All I have are quibbles. Does, does this change your your optimism level going forward? Because, I mean, we we talked sure. we talked yeah. a lot about about you know what this could do for for their ceiling, or how much we were going to find out about this team from this game. And now suddenly you look at the schedule. They don't play USC or Utah. They. I mean, they'll, I would guess they'll be an underdog at Oregon, but is there another game where, where they're not going to go in as the favorite? Like maybe UCLA in two Oregon weeks? State. Oregon State. At home, though? I mean, yeah. I mean, People look. don't like the Beavs. Beavs look good, man. They do. Beavs look good. Hey, the Beavs look good. Listen, I've been on the Beavs. 
I've been I'm, yeah. I've I've been about the Beavs, and like they they have several games that are going to be really tough, and that like that's that's kind of I feel like they they reset what the the best case scenario can be for this team this season. Like I don't that's, that's exactly right. I that's think, exactly what they did. I think is, a, a lot of people watched that game and thought, oh, like you need to start thinking about Washington as a Pac-12 contender now. Yes. 100%. Like, our, our ten, is a 10-win season on the table now? Yeah, I think it is. Like, I think it pretty clearly is. Um, and the, the, the fact, that idea of raising the ceiling, or like, yeah, okay, I do have some hope that they're going to be in the conversation for the Pac-12 championship game. Like, I, I, I do think, I'm, I'm excited to see, the whole year I was gonna, going to be looking forward to seeing what this new offense becomes. This is about as good a best case as close to a best case scenario as you could have gotten like it, it's the, the Seahawks are one and one and I would say like yeah that that's that's pretty good like all things considered for them Washington at three and oh this is like yeah I, I I couldn't ask for a better start to to this season to Kalen DeBoer's tenure like everything that's happening I'm super pumped about I feel like the subtext that a lot of people were pointing out like watching the broadcast and as the game progresses and as um as Washington was kind of asserting its, its will was wow that, you know, wow, they look good. Kalen DeBoer, you know, great hire. Ryan Grubb looks like he really knows what he's doing. Michael Penix Jr. is, you know, looks amazing. But then also like, what did they do to these guys last year? You know, like there were a lot of like, man, what was, what was Jimmy Lake doing? This is, you know, Penix obviously is a, a huge addition. I mean, he makes, he makes a lot of difference, maybe all the difference offensively for them, but he's, Throw into the same guys they had last year, you know, and and a lot of the same guys on the offensive line, and so I think obviously the the relief and the excitement and the the optimism um, for for what this team can be and what this program is now outweighs any of that. But I think that that still was like a very prominent theme, at least on Twitter and from the people I've talked to who were just like, what ha- what happened last year? Yeah, I think you had a giant dum-dum that was coordinating the offense. Like I, I don't, and then a guy who was completely in over his head as you, as your head coach. Like I, I, I don't, I don't think it's much more complicated than that. Like you had a remedial offense that was being run. Like that's, that's not the, the team that we're seeing now. Yes. It's got a better quarterback, but if Dylan Morris is out there or Sam Heward's out there, this team still looks significantly better than it was last year. This isn't entirely about the quarterback. This is about how they were playing. This is it's it's completely about the utilization. They're getting the ball to their best players. Jalen Polk gets hurt earlier that last year, so we don't really know what he would have looked like. But based on the lack of opportunities for Jalen McMillan and Roma Dinze, I have a pretty good idea of what it looked like, and it would have been not much because the the entire system was being run by someone who is hired in inexplicably like it's that's what it goes back to if you could call and and scream at john donovan more but i don't even know if it's his fault like it really goes down to lake right like it's not john john donovan's fault that he couldn't call an offense or couldn't construct an offense he's trying as hard as he can he's just he's just not super bright at it as evidenced by the fact that penn state after him being alongside James Franklin for years, decided like you know what we, for us to get to the next level, we, we appreciate your loyalty and your and and you've got to go. And Jimmy Lake was like, oh well, let's see if we can get him to run the dang ball. Like I I still I have no idea the process that resulted in that dude getting hired. And even taking it back before Lake, I had like somebody commented on on one of my stories the last couple of days to say like, do you think Chris Peterson 
what is watching this from the Fox studios and, and thinking, you know, having, having any introspection about like, Hmm, maybe I, maybe I should have, you know, should have tried to go get somebody to run something like this instead of what, what they were running. They, I complained a fair amount about, about Chris Peterson's offense and it did it through the guise of ripping on Bush Hampton. But Chris Peterson was pretty effective. Like I sign up for the Chris Peterson experience ten times out of ten. And he had right? like, he, he had every every right to have like full faith in his offensive system. They got got a little bit done at Boise State. So it did. It did. But you look at Jake Browning's career, and I don't think it's entirely that Browning just stopped developing. Like I think there was something about the way that that, that offense was structured that they weren't they weren't utilizing everything that was there. I, I'm a I'm a Tedford believer, man. <laughs> like I'm one of the people that'll sit there. Oh and yeah, say you're that, Team Tedford. Je- I am team that Tedford there is the special advisor that year. <laughs> that I don't think it's a coincidence that Jake Browning looked that good while while Tedford was on there. I do I do think Tedford's smart. But like the Chris Peterson, I'll I'll, I'll give him the he has and had the success and the overall vision for the program that clearly he 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 knew more about what was going on like i'm not going to sit there and say like well he shouldn't have been doing it that way because like, soup to nuts his entire program like i said i signed up for 10 out of 10 jimmy lake and john donovan on the other hand <laughs> like, like, i i don't have any reason to believe that that i should defer in any way to the expertise or lack thereof that was shown in the in the selection of him as the offensive coordinator and the implementation of said offense when they hired him like my legit first reaction was well they must have a deep connection like jimmy lake must know what this guy brings and then when it turned out they did not it's like he must have been like lights out in the interview and he knows exactly the system that he's going to bring in here and that wasn't true either like it was it it was a remedial offense they they ran they ran an unacceptable offense. Like there's not. And then when you go back and look at, okay, what did you see in his resume that made you think? Because everything, everything about where Donovan had gone and how he got there, it, it reeks of like when you're when the the guy who's sort of your rabbi and that you're attached to parts ways with you in that way. Like that is a terrible sign. And yet they did. I, it's clear that Washington had a lot more in the cupboard than we saw last year. Maybe this is unfair, but I'm just gonna I'm gonna throw it out there. Um, you know who who one of Donovan's NFL uh, connections was that 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 I had heard Washington really liked. Oh, I'll give you Jed a hint. F- Jed, Jed Fish. I'll give you a hint. Forty-six yard line. Oh no! Yeah. Really? Mm-hmm. Hackett? Yep. Oh. Now, wasn't he a pretty respected? Offensive mind, like hey, it's not going, not going well for him as a head coach right now. But yes, but the caveat is he's hung out with all those dudes that really know what's going on. He's hung out with the McVeigh, Lafleur, sort of Kyle Shanahan tree of young coaches, and and when you get the clusters together like that, sometimes it's hard to sift out the dum dums. Like sometimes they get a little shine. They're like the moon reflecting the glow of the sun. So we'll see. He yes, he does have he does have a really good reputation. But when you're Matt Lafleur's offensive coordinator, 
it would be possible that you don't have all that much to do with the offense that's being coordinated. That it might be it might be the the flower who's taking care of that. So yeah, that would that would that would make my 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 eyebrows my spidey sense just tingled when you brought up that name. <laughs> Although, did you see that Russ had two delay a game penalties last yesterday? I did. Yeah. And then the fans there started counting down yeah. the play clock to try to help him. <laughs> the uh, that means that visiting team fans now need to do that the way that a, a college student section would with the shot clock. <laughs> Throw it off by a couple seconds. <laughs> yeah, get some get some hurried snaps in. Um, God, yeah, yeah. So it's you just see a plan. You see things getting schemed open. That the pass that Westover caught kind of down toward was at the second quarter. What a play that was. One of their scoring drives. That's scheme. Like that was scheme opened that up. Like that was, that was about as easy a pitch and catch as you can have in college football. And the reason it was there is because of the understanding of the coaches about the spacing and, and how Michigan state was defending things. And they recognized a vulnerability and just pummeled them for it. Like it's, they do have players to go up and make plays, especially with McMillan. And Adunze, and I loved the way Polk played. Like, that was fantastic and showed that if you just write him off as a small little shifty slot receiver, you're probably not giving him the credit he has to get down the field. But then there were also times where you're like, that's you, you a Pac-12 player is going to be able to make success because of the scheme that's they're being put in positions to succeed as opposed to having an actual impediment to it or just being said like hey you've got you've got to make this happen this is how it works you got to go beat somebody i've been saying like this is the and it's it's you know not exactly going out on a limb but this even preseason this is clearly the best at least receiver duo when you talk about and the talk usually is about mcmillan and odunze but and and the benchmark for that obviously is john ross and dante pettis like they scored 32 t- yeah, caught 32 touchdown passes or something in 2016. I don't know that they'll ever have a duo combined for more than that. When was the last time they had a, a trio that could be this good? Because even like that 2016 team, who was their number three receiver? I think it was Chico McClatcher. Um, and he was a sophomore and it, that was, that was pre-injury and, and you can still do a lot of things with him, but man, and in, in terms of like one through four, if you count Giles Jackson in there, which you know, I don't know that we've, we've seen his ceiling necessarily. I, I don't know when the last time they had like three really, really, really solid options, and then maybe even feeling good about a fourth and a fifth if you throw in Taj Davis. At ET, Charles Frederick and Reggie Williams, and I'm trying to think of the other guys that were in there, but nobody's nobody's jumping out to me, kind of off the off the top of mind. Um, you certainly even on that that Rose Bowl team, Marcus Tuiasosopo's Rose Bowl team. Rich Alexis, the running back, was a stud, and you had Jeremy Stevens, like Justin Robbins. Yeah, maybe maybe you go. I mean, but this is maybe you go like Jerome Payton and Fred Coleman. That was a good. That was a good duo. Cam Cleland's on that roster, but I look like the Odunze and McMillan, um, and then and throwing in Polk there. I mean, three touchdowns. It's 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 fantastic to watch, and they're in the right system. They're in a system that is getting them the ball. And even that we were talking, Penix throws the ball a little weird. Like he's got a little bit of like Charles different. or Philip Philip Rivers shot put style to it. Yeah, it's a little different. He, he he pushes it as opposed to flinging it, but man, he's accurate. And 
and his placement and his understanding of, of spacing, like he's he's looked fantastic. What uh, what was your day like on on Saturday? How'd you how early did you get there? Did you, did you do a little tailgating or what was your your pregame? We did. We 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 walked over to the Duchess um, as things started to get popping. I believe the Duchess opened at twelve thirty. Um, we were over there for a little while. Then we walked over to Montlake, kind of uh, the it used to be the E lot. I'm not sure if it's still the E lot, but it's between it's between like the Touchdown City or what do they call it? The end zone? Like what? No, it's Touchdown City. Touchdown the, the, Terrace. Yeah, um, that was we between there and the whack. Kind of there's there's a group there that we know that had an RV and hung out there for 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 a couple couple of hours and then we uh we were all in our seats by the by the time within 15 minutes of kickoff which was a big accomplishment for one of the guys that i was with who always complains that he's the only one that gets there on time and the rest of us all (laughs) straggle in because we're coming over from the tailgate everybody was present and accounted for when the kickoff happened uh the funniest thing that happened (laughs) was on the way out after the game uh, there was there was an argument between it was involving two rather sizable Washington fans and and a Michigan State fan who was who was in a walking boot and and had a little scooter uh, like not the little rascal scooters that like are electronic, but just the to keep your weight off yeah, of so but- you can put put your ankle on it. And the Michigan State fan was standing up and removing his boot apparently to prove what injury he had had. I, I didn't understand what was going on, but he was really mad, and he had gotten two Washington fans who were kind of hollering back at him, and it seemed it seemed as if he – I mean, he, not only were the two Washington dudes big, but the, the Michigan State guy was was damaged. Like, this was, this was a bad situation. But it turns out that the fight happened or the argument happened <laughs> because the two Washington fans had said to him, good game, and he flipped out, and he said that they'd been giving him a hard time the whole game and, and making fun of him and telling him to stand up because he was hurt. And so he was taking off his boot, which seemed to me to be the weirdest the weirdest possible strategy you could have in a confrontation. Like, here's my injury. Look how legitimate it is. It is a terrible way to go about initiating physical conflict. Um, in retrospect, I kind of wish somebody had, had, had scurried off with the little rascal the, the the little scooter, but uh, no, everybody everybody put the Michigan State guy back together. There were no there were no uh, there were no fisticuffs thrown, but there was a, a commentary about. Him. We did not know, um, we did not think he was very wise in his in his uh, his approach to to the conflict. And there were a lot of people there. Like we tried to go to Schultz's Sausage afterward, um, over on the Ave. Schultz's is much more fancy now than we were there. But one of the guys I was with is actually on the wall for his consumption. Of sausages? Oh my! Like he's he. Well, they they used to. If you if you eat a certain number of sausages, they put you on the wall, like kind of their hall of fame. I think Lincoln Kennedy is on top of it uh, <laughs> with some ungodly number, like nine sausages with buns. Uh, Kyle Kyle Smith, who lives up in Anchorage, uh, I I think he's at six. He might have been five. But the saddest thing about his excursion is when he when he when he went and paid for the sausages and got himself up on the board uh he walked home and he was very uncomfortable like he was he was he was in a great deal of physical distress and then he realized that uh, he had left his backpack over at schultz's sausage and being the really really uh gracious and compassionate roommates that we were uh, we all laughed at him and told him he was going to have to walk back and get his backpack. As, as one does. 
That was it. They were like, yeah, you got to pay the piper on that one. So uh, he did, which we all laugh about now. I do not think he was genuinely amused uh, when when, when, when that actually occurred. But it was, Schultz's was so crowded, we had to go elsewhere for dinner. It was a a line. It was like a 45-minute to an hour line. That was a brilliant transition from um, the guy taking off his boot to prove his injury to Schultz's, where they sell boots full of beer. At least they used to. I assume they still do that. I would, I would guess so. I didn't, I didn't really know. I don't. I'm trying to think. I think I've eaten at the new Schultzies once because it used to be a total dive, um, as in many things. I, but I'm not going to bemoan the gentrification of the Av because it's still pretty gritty. Yeah, it's it's changed a lot. I I don't as much as I'm at like Husky Stadium and the football facilities. I don't really see like campus or the U District a whole lot. So the few times I do go up there, I I'm always like, I don't recognize a lot of. the a lot of the restaurants and stuff, which is, man, that's how, that's how it goes. It's been 12 years now, but, um, shout out to the Duchess though. Duchess is a quality pregame experience. I've only been that's there one good, time. That's a good spot. Yeah, it was, it, and it was, there was, it was, it was nice. They've got a little bit of patio there. Good games were on. I w- wish BYU would have played a little better against Oregon, but yeah, no, it was, it was a fantastic day. And that's, that was, that was as good as I could have hoped for performance from the Huskies. I also was hoping you were going to say that the guy uh, took his boot off to use it as a weapon in the, the escalator. That's fight. what we all said. That would have made made sense if he had had a prosthetic and then removed the prosthetic and used it as, as some sort of club. But just showing the scar from what appeared to be, we all thought it was Achilles surgery, but I'm not really sure. Like that's, it's just telling someone how to hurt you. How about the Pacific Northwest schools? Eleven and one, yeah. eleven and one through uh, through the first three weeks here. Um, and like I, I think Oregon State and Washington State kind of like got assigned that sleeper status in the in the preseason. That both of those were teams that you know, I don't think anybody was going to go out on a limb and pick them to go to the championship game necessarily. But you could see how they maybe had some pieces to to surprise and to to be pretty good this year. Washington was sort of wait and see. Oregon, I think, was picked by the media to be in the the conference championship game. Um, do, do you see like who do you think has the most staying power of those four right now? Because like I think you could make a case for for any four of them, kind of based on their their strengths. Oregon State has been the most impressive to me so far. I think Oregon State's really good along the lines. I think I think they got good big dudes. Um, yeah, their whole line's really the, good. Yeah, of their of those. Of those four teams, and I'm probably talking more sort of gap between, not expectation because like you've been on the beefs for 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 a while, but general perception, the the difference of general perception and how they're playing. I mean, Oregon State's got USC this week. Um, that game's going to be at 7:30 on the Pac-12 network, which I'm shocked at, um, and it must be because the TV networks think that Oregon State is just not a draw. So they don't they they don't want to pick that because there's a limit to how many times USC can appear on like ESPN or or or, or Fox or, or ABC. Like there's a limit to how many. So I think they're staying away from them because they don't see. But that's going to be a heck of a game. And then Washington State has has Oregon. Washington State's defense looks legit. Like Washington State's defense looks really good. I'm still not sure about their quarterback. Whereas I think I think Oregon State is strong up front. And and I think their offense is solid. And that that win over Fresno State, 
I think that win over Fresno State says an awful lot, although Fresno State just got smacked by USC. So Wilner did a really good job explaining the uh, John Wilner at the San Jose Mercury News did a really good job explaining that the USC Pac-12 network thing. It's that every team has to play on the Pac-12 network a certain number of times. I think it's three. Um, and the so his his assumption, and I think it's a, a a fair one, was that the the networks believe probably correctly that USC is going to be really good, and that they're going to want them for some like really big time matchups later in the year. So they figured, why not, why not pa- pass on them for now to let them meet that Pac-12 network requirement, so that they're not stuck in a situation in week, you know, ten or eleven or whatever, where it's a, a huge game, but they have no choice but to let the the Pac-12 network take it. So, are you are, is that is that one? Does that qualify for staying up late for you, Oregon State and yeah. USC? Because yeah, that's yeah. That's, a, that's a big one. Well, we also got we got also got Stanford to consider there too, right? Like I'm gonna I'm gonna have a late night, but yeah, I'm gonna oh yeah, right. Play for that game. How could I forget? Uh, Washington's playing at yeah, seven thirty. No, Jeez. I, I, absolutely. Like I I like the way the Pac-12 is shaping up. Plus, the Fighting Jed Fish has barely survived. Did you see that? That's a good win, though. That's a that's a national that's a perennial national champion. They beat. Come on, come on. They 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 they'd won they, their they'd, they'd won their this... last six games against FBS opponents. By the skin of their teeth, that team, that team, do you think they'd win the Big Sky? Because I don't think, I do not think Arizona would win the Big Sky. Oh, I think they would. I don't Are think. sure? Is there a Big Sky team that can beat North Dakota State? <laughs> North, North Dakota State has laid the wood in, in the FCS for the last, like, decade. <laughs> I don't know, man. I don't think Arizona's winning the Big Sky. I'm just saying, you put them in the Big Sky, I don't think they're winning that conference. I don't know. I I I like Arizona in the Big Sky. I think they'd go nine and three. <laughs> <laughs> they were celebrating though, man. That's hey, look, that's that's a program learning how to win. Who's going to savor every moment on the way up, assuming they're on the way up. Um, they're two and one. You know what? Preseason uh, totals. I think their win total in in on Bavada. I think it was was like two and a half. And I remember, like, man. I would I would hammer that two and a half like to win three games. They've won two games, two of their first three games, and they still got to play Colorado. Yeah, yeah, and Arizona State. Jeez. Yeah. Is is Darrell? Is there a chance they fire him in the middle of the season? Uh there's 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 weird. There's like a a date that his buyout goes down a little bit. <laughs> I don't think it's. I love those fans. Significant. I, I know. Love those like, <laughs> well, they. <laughs> the funniest. Although, although Scott Frost had one right, and they're like, "Yeah, dude, we're not even going to wait yeah. for that. Like, we know it'll be cheaper in a month, but you've got to go now, like, out." Did you see the Ed Orgeron clip from a few weeks ago? The interview he did, where they asked to ask which which door to leave. Yeah, <laughs> which, which door you want me to leave? When do you want me out, and which door do you want me out of? Uh, <laughs> I, I so Colorado's athletic director put out a statement about the you know the program and everything this week that seemed it it read very much like a statement that uh, Scott Woodward might have put out in mid September two thousand eight about Tyrone Willingham that was just like eh, it's not good enough we hope you'll still support us blah 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 not not a not a lot in there to indicate that you should expect Carl Durrell to be coaching Colorado beyond this season so that's you know, uh. Th- their combined score this year, like they've been outscored 128 to 30. Is that bad? It's, 
TCU Air Force in Minnesota. I'm going to say that the schedule didn't do him any favors. Yeah. The the mystery of why Colorado, what happened to them, though, is is interesting because 30 years ago, it's a really good program. Like 30 years ago, it's yeah. really good. And I know facilities are an issue, but 30 years ago, it was recruiting effectively in Southern California. Like that, that, that change and watching that program fall off the cliff the way it did is is one of the bigger surprises in college football. Not as surprising as Nebraska, but but up there. I feel like the replay of the 2016 Pac-12 championship game is going to like pop up on TV sometime 25 years from now and people are going to be like, "Oh, Colorado was in that game." Oh yeah, that's yeah, yeah, hey, remember when Colorado randomly won the Pac-12 South that one year and then had like four different coaches over the next however many years and yeah, fell off the face of the earth. Yeah, it's, it's it's bizarre. Who do you out of those four Northwest schools that we talked about? The four schools that are eleven and one. Which do you, which do you think is the best team? Man, right now, like if they if they were to play the uh, the Rick Neuheisel sponsored Northwest Championship tomorrow, the Northwest Championship Jamboree style. Yeah, I got to think like or I think it's between Oregon and Washington narrowly. Um, I I don't want to undersell Oregon based on the Georgia result. Because man, they they smacked BYU. Um, how about Bo, how about on the Bo Nix factor though? I told you like I the one thing pretty that good I'm on Saturday. About, I'm I'm pumped about. I was happy to see that. Like that was the saving grace of them not losing was that Bo Nix got one week closer. Like that bought him at least two more weeks. Like he might be the starting quarterback when Washington plays him, which is ideal. <laughs> uh, I I would I would probably favor Oregon right now. Um, just think they got. They got a lot of dudes on that front seven, and I I thought Saturday like started to show, um, I, I, maybe not for the first time because they put up seventy plus against Eastern, but for the first time against like a, a a big time FBS team, they started to show like what what some of their their skill weapons can do. So, I I think it'd be a really good game between any any two of those four right now. I think would probably tilt toward Oregon and Washington, but man, if I'm if I'm either of those teams or if I'm the rest of the Pac-12, like I'm not looking forward to a matchup with Oregon State or Washington State. So uh be something if if all four of those can can keep it up. You know, we both went one and three in our, our Pac-12 picks uh this week. Yeah. Yeah, that'll happen sometimes. I might Cal Cal covering that eleven was my, my saving grace. Um Yeah. Or no they two almost won that game. No, I was I, t- I take that back. I was two and two. Uh and so are you. Both two and two. What am I saying? SC SC covered in Washington. You you, you took Washington, so you got you got broke uh, broke five hundred there. Um, we'll wrap it up here. I will. I'll, good news, everybody, or or bad news if you only listen to us for like like um, masochism Christian, purposes. This is, a, this is a terrible sales job. No, it's incredibly good news. <laughs> It's this is this this week is going to be like the Jean Claude Van Damme movie where there's two of him. Uh, I believe it was sudden impact, and the 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 catchphrase for it was twice the Van Damage because Jean Claude played twins in that movie, and that's that's what we're going to have twin episodes this week. Wasn't twice there a, the Van Damage? Wasn't there a movie called Multiplicity? Oh or, yeah, that's Michael Keaton. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he made a bunch of clones of himself. We need to go, Michael Keaton. We're gonna do <laughs> we're gonna do seventeen episodes this week <laughs> for for today. Uh, no, so we'll we'll get to our Pac-12 picks uh, next week. What do you say, Wednesday? Yeah, 
Yeah. yeah we get, we'll put it together Wednesday. Last question for you, though. Who was the best player in that game on defense for Washington? Who played the best? Man, it might have been Julius Irvin. Mm-hmm. You know, as stepping in for Jordan Perryman at a position that they didn't have him at like three weeks ago. Um, and I think when they recruited him, they thought he, he'd be a kind of a Swiss Army knife. He'd be able to play everywhere. He'd be really versatile. He could play nickel, could put him at safety. I think he started out learning corner. But, yeah, he's got a pick. He's got that final pass breakup to, to basically end the game. Um, I I think to to cite your favorite your favorite service here, PFF had uh, Michigan State two for seven when targeting him for like twenty two yards oh. or something like that. So that's I mean, yeah, you talk and in a game where like their pass defense wasn't necessarily great, and they're down Asa Turner, down Jordan Perryman again. They're moving some pieces around. They got guys out there who haven't played a ton, and he really he really stepped up. At least he was the one who stood out the most to me. I think they were pretty good. Um, they were pretty good against the run. And I think you give a lot of credit to the, to the D line, whether it showed up in the numbers or not, but Julius Irvin was the one who I think stood out the most. I thought he, he, he was, he was the one that really opened my eyes where I was like, okay, I, I like the way he looks like a player. I also thought Alex cook played a really good game. He was, he was solid. He was solid coming up against the run. I think he's just a really, yep. he's turned into a really dependable player for them back there, which is exactly yep. what they've needed. Yeah, no, it's it's been good. It was fun, man. I, I can't, I'm still smiling from everything that happened. My voice has returned and I still have the smile. We'll wrap it up there. Enjoy the rest of your Monday, everybody, and we'll see you later this week.